When I was a little kid, I had a friend, and sometimes we'd talk about our churches. I went to a church, and he went to a completely different church. And I told him at my church, I love it because the sermons aren't longer than five minutes. And he said, oh, at our church, they last about an hour. And I said, how can you stand it? He goes, oh, we have a really good preacher. I said, man, that'd kill me going to a church where they preach so long. And then I end up going to one of his churches, and then you get me for two hours today. It's fantastic. <laughs> but I, I've been thinking through, what is the purpose of preaching? Why even have preaching? Why don't we just sing songs, kind of like a concert, and go home? In the new church, in the book of Acts says they would do four things. They would worship together. They'd fellowship together. They'd evangelize. That means bring people that don't know Jesus to the church to learn about Jesus. But they would also come for instruction to learn. It was a weekly thing, the very first day of the week. Why? I think two reasons why. We need to, we need to be thinking people. We believe a set of ideas. And those ideas guide our lives. We don't just believe because we feel it. We believe because it's true. And truth has specific statements that we need to know. We need to know things about Jesus, about the Father, about the Spirit. We need to know things about heaven and hell. It's called doctrine. People have turned that word into dogma like it's a bad thing, but it's a wonderful thing. It helps us know who we are. But the second reason we need preaching is to be encouraged. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Daily, our adversary is firing darts at us. Darts? Yeah, flaming arrows of doubt. He wants us to quit believing. One person said, If Satan can't stop you from believing, he will discourage you from living. He wants you to quit. He wants you to be despondent and depressed. He wants you to mope around. He wants you to think that life is terrible. And he does a good job of it. And he does it every day. Every single day. And he does it through lies. He uses lies to convince us to quit. I think there's some lies that... Um, you know, are, are very important to know. Like, if a person is really a child of God, can they lose their position, their standing with God? And I think he wants us to believe, yeah, yeah, you can. You can't. We're not going to talk about that today, but you can't. I think another lie that Satan tries to tell us is that if you are a child of God, you can do whatever you want. You can sin like crazy and there won't be any consequences. I think that's a great lie of his. We're not going to talk about that today, and that's not true. A third lie is this, that we are on earth to get rich, and God wants me to be wealthy and healthy. And if I'm sick or if I'm poor, I must be doing something wrong. So that's a debilitating lie that Satan loves to weave into our little brains. But I think there is one lie. That is his biggest lie. And I think he has us believing this almost every day. And here's the lie. The lie is that Satan has equal power to God. Just as powerful, just as strong. And in some sense, there are some areas 
that Satan has power over that God can't touch. I was reading this paper that Trevor gave me, and this, some people teach that if you buy a house where there's a lot of sin, let's say somebody was an adulterer or they were a murderer, and you now buy their house, that spirit of adultery and murder will come upon you. And so you better pray about it, and if you don't, you're in trouble. Well, we better walk across, the, walk around a city so that God won't, so God can finally enter, because if we don't walk around that city, he can't get in there. Because, you know, Satan's tough, man. He's strong. And I think if we believe that, we start panicking when we watch the news, when we when we hear about all the numbers ticking up, we panic and we say we're done for. We're going to lose. It's over because I don't know if God can win. But, but is that true? I'm going to talk today about a bat, like a boxing match or a wrestling match and imagine we have a ring and I'm going to have two competitors that are going to enter into this ring and they're going to fight it out today. And so the title for today is The Trinity versus the Devil. Who's going to win? The two grand champions are going to duke it out. It's going to be a tough match, isn't it? Oh boy, who's going to win? And should we be in fear that God might lose? What if he loses to Satan? <laughs> it's bad. So we're going to battle this out today. So the way we're going to do this is we are going to first talk about who they are specifically. Second thing we're going to talk about is their abilities and how they use those abilities every single day on the earth. And then the third thing we have to talk about is who's going to win because it's close to close match. And if you think I'm serious, you're crazy. We're talking about God. My job, I have one job today, and here's my job. My goal is to tell you to stop being afraid. Stop it. My goal is to not only tell you to stop being afraid, but live in joy. Stop walking around like, I'm, I'm a Christian, and we're just so beleaguered, and we're losing everything. Are we? That's what we got to talk about, because I think you think about that. Even this morning, I'm telling you, I fall for this lie almost daily. This morning I woke up and I said, I'm going to do a terrible job. I, I, should, I don't know why I have this job. I should just quit. I stink. My life's terrible. Tomorrow's going to be even worse. Probably going to get a heart attack. You know, like I just think of all the worst things. Like I, I have no chance. No chance. And I think you do too. And that's why we need to come to church to say, stop it. So, open up to Matthew 12, and we're going to look at verses 15 to actually 32. I have it wrong up there of 33, saving that for next week. Starting in verse 15, it comes off the back end of 14. Verse 14, the leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. They didn't like him. They wanted him gone. So, verse 15 starts from that context. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. He healed all of them. Every last one. Everyone. He healed them all. I want you just to 
Think about that for a second. We go too fast sometimes. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to mercy. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I have cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We'll look at the rest in a second. So, we have a match here. You'll see it in a second. We have one competitor who enters, and we have another one who's going to come later. But the first one we find is Jesus in verse 15. Jesus is going to quote an Old Testament scripture starting in verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice. This is from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. It was written 700 years before Jesus uttered this. That's a long time. That's like three Americas. That's a long time. And he said, this is me. A lot of the Jews, it's called the, it's called the writings in Isaiah of the suffering servant. The Jews would often say it's about the nation Israel because they are going to suffer for the world. And Jesus is saying, uh-uh, this isn't about the nation, it's about a person, and I'm that person. So enter that person, and it's not just Jesus, but he is, he's supported by two others that are one. It's three and one, we call that the Trinity. Look at the middle of verse 18, he says it like this. I will put my spirit upon him. I is the Father. I is Jehovah God, who has created the heavens and the earth. We call him our Father because he starts it all. Then we have this person that he says, him. Who is him? It's a person in a body, and this person is Jesus, the Son, who the Father sent. So the Father wanted to proclaim himself, wanted people to know him, so he sent a visible, perfect representation of himself in the Son. The Son is the exact representation of the Father, the radiance of his glory. So the Son is God in flesh. 
And then he gives them the spirit to empower him, to woo people, to convince the world of sin and righteousness. He's the agent. So you can say it like this. God plans it, Jesus accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit administers or gives him agency and power. We call this the Trinity, three in one. I don't understand how God is. I really don't. I can't explain it to you. Like there's no, al, al, um, what is it, allegory, Josh? What do you call it? No allegory. No metaphor that properly describes God. But it's true. He's three in one. So he enters the ring. And when he enters the ring, he has an advantage over any other competitor. Usually when you watch a you. Uh, like world wrestling competition or a boxing match, the commentators will say something good about this person. When I was in a, a little kid in the 1980s, I'd watch uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. Anybody remember Jake the Snake Roberts? He had a move that was called the pile driver. It was an amazing move. They'd say, Jake the Snake Roberts, he's got the pile driver. So what he could do is he could pick up his competitor, lift him upside down, and he would smash him on his knees. But the shoulders would hit the knee, but it looks like the head's hitting the ground. It was great theater. I loved it. So I do it on my kids all the time. You don't, if you don't obey me, I'm going to pile drive you. It's great. You pick them up, flip them, bam. They smash their shoulders on the knees. But that was Jake the Snake's move. You know, so Mike Tyson's move was he lifts a little bit and he just pops you in the face and you're, you're out. That's the advantage. What is the advantage of the Trinity? Does the Trinity have any advantage in a match? Well, he is omnipotent. That means he's, he has all power. I don't know if that would help him too much, but that's a pretty good deal. When you have all power, it's not bad. It's not bad. He is omniscient. That means he knows everything. So he knows everything before you do it. Did you know he knows everything before Satan does it? He knows everything Satan thinks. Did you know that? I don't think people believe that. He's, he's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. That's Isaiah 46, including the schemes of Satan. And you can say, Satan. And he's not even scared if you say that. Because <laughs> he knew I was going to say that before I said it. See how omniscient he is? But I don't know if that's a good advantage to have. It's pretty good. But he's got one advantage. That is the greatest advantage over any competitor. We find it in verse 18. And the advantage the Trinity has is love. And it's the greatest power anybody can have. And I'll explain it to you in a second. But look at verse 18. So Jesus is quoting an Old Testament scripture about the sending of the servant who is the son, and he says this, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. My beloved means this is the one I love, and who I'm well pleased is this is the one I like. He not only loves Jesus, the father not only loves the son, but he delights in him, like he likes him. Everything about him. So you could say, when Jesus enters the ring, he enters the ring full of love of the Father. 
he knows in his mind he's already accepted. That's why it says, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. If you remember when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3, 17, John the baptized, baptized him, comes out of the water and God said, hey, everybody, says it out of the sky. God the Father said, this is my son. With him I'm well pleased. So Jesus starts from a position of knowledge that he is fully loved. So you could say it like this. Jesus has already won, so he doesn't need to compete. He's already arrived, so he doesn't have to prove anything. Because really, why do people compete? To prove they're significant. To prove they're important. To be loved and accepted. We want to be the best. But when the Father says you're already the best, you don't really need to compete. So you could say this. When you are driven by love, you cannot be defeated because you already won. Most of the time we compete is because we want to prove ourselves. What does Jesus have to prove? Nothing. And because he has nothing to prove, out of him comes an undefeatable spirit. You can't defeat him. That's why the first thing it says in verse 19 is he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's got a quiet strength, a quiet confidence. In the NIV it says he does not shout he does not argue. He doesn't need to prove himself because he's already been proven to the Father. The way you can tell somebody really feels like they are weak is they're always angry and arguing. Jesus doesn't need to argue or be angry. I like to look at it like this. I believe Christianity is the truth. So when people come to my office or they debate me, I'm not worried about what they ask me, because I know I have the truth. So the truth is sort of like a steel wall. Steel, made out of steel. I've used this example before, but imagine I have a plate of steel, and I hand you a sledgehammer. Go ahead and try to hit that steel wall. See if you can break it. I don't care. I really don't care. Tire yourself out, so I have nothing to worry about. So when I have the truth on my side, I'm not defensive. I don't get loud, and I don't argue. But if this isn't the truth, a lot of people don't know if they have the truth, what they'll do, kind of like a piece of drywall, they'll try to paint it to look like steel, and they won't let anybody touch it. And they're always arguing and they're mad. How dare you accuse me of that? How dare you say that? Because they don't know if it will sustain itself. Jesus was fully confident in the love from the Father. The way that you can tell that you are loved is you quit fighting. You have a quiet confidence. Somebody insults you, so what? Why does it bother you so much? Because you've got to prove yourself. Why are you angry? The second thing is that Jesus is able to love the unlovable. He wants the unwanted. That's what this says where it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed in the old, the old days, they would take a reed. Imagine a bamboo shoot, but a straight piece of, of reed that would come out of the marshes, but it would be thick and straight. They'd use it for a ruler. A lot of times they'd use it to be a, they'd bundle them together to hold up walls and posters and signs. But a bruised reed was cracked and bent, and it couldn't support anything, so it wasn't straight, 
and it wasn't strong. So they would throw it away. It was cast aside. But Jesus will not break the bruised reed. In fact, he wants to help sustain the person that's a castaway. That is unwanted, he wants. And then a smoldering wick, when you make a candle, you need a piece of fabric that's dry and you roll it up and you put wax on it, it becomes the wick. But a smoldering wick is a piece of fabric that's probably already wet and moldy and it just smolders. It doesn't have a clear flame, so you get rid of that and you throw it away. So if a person is a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, they are kind of worthless people. Not to Jesus. No one's worthless. He wants everybody. And do you want to know why? It's because he's already full. Human love does this. I love the person I think can help me feel full. So I'm always looking for somebody. Maybe they're beautiful. If I date somebody beautiful, look how good I am because I'm dating a beautiful person. So actually, I'm loving them for me. Or I hang out with the people that say the things I like to talk about or I like to hear. I don't like people too much that talk about weird things. I like people that are like me because it makes me feel pretty good. I like that. So usually I love the people that have something to offer me. That's human love. God's love loves those who are empty so he can fill them. So he's looking for the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks. And the way you know you have God's love in you is you just love people regardless of what they can give you. That's called unconditional. And then the third thing about the love is that Jesus gives himself for us all. It says, until he brings justice to victory, justice, yeah, justice, because the Father has to punish sin, and nobody can stand in his presence. So Jesus died for sin to make the unjust just. And then when the unjust are made just by faith, they have victory. That's why, verse 21, all the Gentiles will find their hope in him. He's amazing. When you have love, and because Jesus is full, when you are full of the love of the Father... You are unbeatable. You're unbeatable. And the problem with us is we are, we are cracked vessels and we, we lose that confidence in the Father's love so quickly. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians, I want you to know how wide and how long and how high the love of the Father is for us. Because when we're full, this becomes us. We have a quiet strength. We reach out and we become servants. Watch how his love works out in verse 22 to 23. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. So imagine this guy. Here's a guy. He's possessed by a demon. I don't really know what that means. I mean, it's, I've, I don't think I've personally seen a demon-possessed person. I mean, like they were in the Old Testament. And then he's blind. And then he's mute. So he probably was an outcast. He's probably smelly, and he probably had nothing to offer anybody. And I'll bet you nobody really noticed him. They walked right by him, ignored him, walked around him. It says they brought him to Jesus, and Jesus didn't say get rid of the guy. It said, 
um, Jesus healed him. Jesus didn't need to shun him. Jesus didn't shout at the guy to leave. Jesus loved him. And then because he did, he healed him. The man was able to speak, and then he saw. He was made new. And then verse 23, and all the people were amazed. And they said, they're looking at the guy in the corner of the boxing ring, and they looked at him, and they said, that's, that's the son of David. That's the person we've been waiting for that we've been told about for 2,000 years. He's the Messiah. He's my king. So if we just stop there, why do, we can just stop the story right there. Everything's great. You notice when Jesus enters, Jesus really doesn't, he really isn't a controversial figure. He did everything great. There's no, if we stop at verse 23, the story is wonderful. I think it's a lot for Christians the same way. We don't come to make problems. We come to make the world better. But there's a problem. And you find it in verse 24. Another competitor has entered the ring. And watch what it says. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. What happens here is here Jesus is getting all the acclaim and all the glory, and the devil doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. He does not like Jesus being praised. And so what he does is in the same way the father uses the son, the devil uses proud people. He enters them. He manipulates them. He lies to them. And he causes them to be jealous. They're jealous. The devil is jealous of Jesus because I'll show you in a second why. But the devil will use people to be jealous of what other people have. And jealous people never stop. They've got to defeat the other person. Because they hate goodness. Specifically, they hate God's goodness. I, it's funny, I, I was, as I was thinking, I asked the question, why would anybody hate God's goodness? Why would the devil hate God's goodness? Goodness makes everything good. The guy was healed from... The guy was healed and the Pharisees are upset. Why would the Pharisees be upset at a guy being healed? Like it's crazy actually. My daughter watched this show and I blame Jasmine and she's back so I'm blaming you. Jazz watched this terrible show and it was about this girl named Gypsy Rose. You guys ever hear the story of Gypsy Rose? Gypsy Rose... Had, her mom had a disease called Manchusen Syndrome by proxy. Gypsy Rose was a sweet little girl whose mom wanted her to be sick so everybody would have sympathy for the mom. So she made her daughter, Gypsy Rose, sick. So she would inject her with sicknesses and she would give her medicine that made her sick and she would pull out her teeth and she'd look like a cancer victim, but she was perfectly fine. But her mom wanted her to look like a cancer victim, so her mom would get praise and sympathy and support. They won that dream thing. They, she got all kind of money. She had a sickness where she wanted to be, she wanted to be seen as an amazing caretaker, and the way she did it is by hurting her daughter. The Pharisees did not like 
the people being healed by Jesus. Why? I'll show you why. Go to Isaiah chapter 14. Derek, have you watched that show? Don't watch it, Derek. It's demented. <laughs> so, Isaiah 14, verses 11 through 15. It's, in, it's what we call, it's called a, scholars would call this a poetic taunt to the devil. A taunt is kind of a mocking poem to the devil. It's not like the Rolling Stones' sympathy for the devil. It's the mockery of the devil. And it starts really around verse 3. And if you notice in your Bible, it will say, Israel's remnant taunts Babylon. The king of Babylon was possessed by the devil. In verse 11 through 14, it tells you who he is possessed by, and the devil caused the prince of Babylon, the king of Babylon, to be proud and a tyrant and terrible person. In verse 11, God says, Your pomp, talking to the devil, your pomp is brought down to hell, Sheol. The sound of your harps, apparently the devil is an amazing musician, Sound of your harps are brought down there too. And it says, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. There is this wrong, another lie, that says basically the devil is, he's the king of hell. And he's ruling hell. And that's why you have like artists, like the Grateful Dead said, I, hey, I'm going to hell in a bucket, but man, at least I'm enjoying the ride. Or you have cool people that say, I'd rather be in hell, man, than heaven. As if I'm partying it up, free from God, and as if Satan's letting me do what I want. No, 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 no. Satan is going to be the most terrorized in the very bottom of the pit, ruled by maggots. He's a liar. He has no power. He's disgusting. Just because a guy can get tattoos and ride a motorcycle and wear a leather jacket and drink beer and beat people up with chains like they're, like they're real, you're going to go down there with him. You're really not that strong. He's lying to you. It's really not hard to look tough. It's weird. Satan's an amazing liar. He's going to be the bottom, on the bottom rung. The reason I say this is we fear him. This is a taunt against him. And then it says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, that's Lucifer. O bright star, how are you fallen? Because Jesus had him cast out. Jesus even said, I saw when he fell like lightning. You laid the nations low. You said in your heart, so here's his problem. Satan said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high God. Satan's problem is I deserve to be on top. And I'm going to be on top. Why do you think he's jealous? Because he's not going to be on top. So how do you know he's working? Three, three ways. The devil... Never stops. He's always the aggressor. His time's limited because he wants. He can't not want. He can't leave 
well enough alone. Have you ever noticed, if you look just even listen to news or a society, evil's always on the move forward to encroach upon that which is good. It wants to ruin the good. It hates the good because it's jealous of the good, actually. Truthfully. And I know I'm, I know I'm not allowed to say this, and I know people think I'm always political, but one of the coolest things is a good family with a mother and a father and children who live in that love, and he hates it. So he hates the idea of a mother and a father, and he hates the idea of living under the authority of a mom and dad who love him. And so what Satan wants to do is he wants to destroy that. So what he wants people to be, I want independence and do things my way. And I'm telling you, we're, we're, let, we're buying into that, thinking that is love. It's a lie, which leads to the second one, and the, is that the devil destroys through slander and lying. John 8, 44, the devil's language is lies. He never tells the truth. Never. Never tells the truth. I think he was the first advertising agent. He's an amazing promoter. But his promotions are lies. You'll be happy if you have this. You deserve this. Go get this. Because you're so good. And he says it with that twinkle in his eye. and The, the English lute. I think he talks like that. You deserve it. Yes, you're right. I deserve it. But he wants to destroy you. He destroys the truth and he slanders people. Look in Matthew 12. He calls Jesus Beelzebub. The devil's calling Jesus the devil. Often the devil will accuse, people will accuse you who are led by the devil, accuse you of things they are actually doing. It's crazy. It's crazy how it works. And the third way the devil works is he wins when he can destroy the work of God. If you go to Matthew 12, verse 30, it says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're actually against me. So there is a battle going on. And if the devil can get you to doubt and then deny, he wins. That's how it started in the garden. Adam wanted the fruit. He said, said, what happens if you eat that fruit, Adam? I'll die. How do you know? Well, God said, did God really say that? Did he? Did he really say that? And then he convinced Adam that, go ahead and eat the fruit. In other words, God's holding back on you. Actually, God doesn't want you to have a good life. So he's taking it away. So go ahead and eat it. And so when Adam ate the fruit, all of this, all of this flood of hell came into this earth. And he still does it the same way. And he begins with this. Do you really believe this? Come on. Haven't we moved past this yet? You know, if you believe this, you, you're going to be left out of history. And then he convinces you that some sin is actually God holding back on you so you indulge in a sin. And when you indulge in a sin, James says you give birth to death. That's how it works. And Satan's a master at destruction. 
So the question is, actually I want to show you one more thing. Look at verses 31 and 32, and then I'll ask a question. So Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So verse 32 is what's called the unforgivable sin. The question is, what is the unforgivable sin? Is the unforgivable sin suicide? Some people teach that. Is the unforgivable sin murder? Conscious murder, where I pre-plan it? Is the unforgivable sin homosexuality? What is the unforgivable sin? None of those are the unforgivable sin. According to this, the situation is very specific. Jesus did the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit, healed people. The Pharisees accused that work as the work of the devil. So they were blaspheming the perfect Son of God and His work. So you could say the unforgivable sin is when the Spirit of God works and you call it the work of the devil. Some people will take it a step further. They will say, well, what is the Holy Spirit's work? Right now the Holy Spirit's work is to open our minds to the beauty of Jesus, to the gospel, and to give us to fall in love with Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit starts working in our heart, we start opening our eyes and say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, and yet our heart says, no, he's not. No, he's not. Some people say that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit's work. It's denial of the work. So you could say the unforgivable sin is rejection of the gospel. I'm okay with that. But, I, but you don't want to be okay with that. It's dangerous to reject the gospel and the work of the Spirit. So we talked about who they are. Trinity's in this corner. The devil's in this corner. We talked about how they work. He uses love. He is the aggressor with jealousy. So who wins? Because in a way, the reason God has to go into battle because he won't stop. So who wins? Jesus gives the answer in verses 25 to 28. Listen closely, and then we're going to show you an example of how this works. Verse 25. So, knowing their thoughts, the Pharisees' hearts, he said to the Pharisees, Did you know every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste? And no city or house divided against itself will stand. This is where Abraham Lincoln got that famous statement. Even though he used that statement, it's really not about what he's saying. It's about, it's about Satan and Jesus' work. Verse 26, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So first of all, Jesus is using logic to say, if what I'm doing is of the devil, it's kind of stupid because doesn't the devil want people possessed? The devil wants to destroy people. Why would I heal people? Because no kingdom will act against itself. If I want to win by doing something, why will I destroy that thing I'm doing that causes me to win? So Jesus is saying that's bad logic, first of all. And then he goes into verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by then who do your sons cast them out? What he's saying to the Pharisees is they have some of the priests would do exorcisms and cast demons out. So if it was a success, 
Who's doing it, Jesus said. So if you're accusing me of casting out demons, who is casting out demons for the Pharisees, the priests? It doesn't work. It won't work both ways. So that's why he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is here. So the first answer is, the reason why I can cast out demons is because I am the son of David. I am the king, and the kingdom's here. Then he says this in verse 29. Second reason why I can cast out demons, I have the power to. He says, how can, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Verse 29, he's saying, the strong man who's Satan, I can bind him because he's stronger. And what he did to release the guy from the demon is the demon had that guy as his possession and God threw out the demon so he was now Jesus' possession. He stole from Satan because he's stronger. The problem is people will use verse 29 as like a, what I would say is a magical formula of prayer. I bind you, Satan. You can't. You can't. Jesus can. And he already has. So James just says, just draw near to just draw near to God and Satan will flee. Why will Satan flee? Because he can bind Satan. You can't with your words of magic. You're not a magician. You're just a person. It's kind of like if an enemy enters my house, my dad's gone in the back. Let's say he's in the backyard pruning rose bushes, and the bad guy comes in, and I say, how dare you, bad guy? I bind you in my dad's name. The guy just grabs me by the throat and throws me aside the thing. But if I go out in the back where my dad's, hey, dad, there's some guy that's in there. What? My dad will throw down the clippers, come out there and take that guy by the neck and throw him against the wall. <laughs> See the difference? The reason why I'm saying this is because we use a lot of magic in prayer. Just draw near to God. Quit playing, quit playing Hollywood movies, sensational stuff. To me, Hollywood is Satan's lie. Like, he has movies to make him seem so tough. That's why I can't, to a degree, can't stand Hollywood, because they'll make Satan seem so scary. People come in my office and say, do you believe in demons? I do believe in demons. Well, I saw, you know, a video, and if I see this video, he's lying to you. He never tells the truth. And you buy his lies, and you're scared to death. Quit being so scared. It's not true. Some people, I guarantee you, will say, oh, I'm telling you, don't touch those things. I'll talk about that in a second. So, let me just show you how we don't need to be scared. Because the battle happened in 1 Kings already. 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings is in the Old Testament, in the white pages of the Bible, where they're white because there's not many smudge marks, because people rarely read this. 1 Kings chapter 18, and uh, to me, this is one of the funniest stories in all of the Bible. I think it's intended to be absolutely hilarious, but you've got to look at it. So you have a, you have a, you have a match, and it's going to be God's man Elijah versus the Satan's men, the priest of Baal. That's where Beelzebub comes from. So God's man, Elijah, verse Baal. So verse 21, he sets the ground rules of the fight. 
And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you be in the fence? How long will you be a wishy-washy? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. All right? So that's your choice. So here is the proposition, verse 23. Here's what we're going to do. Let two bulls, two fat cows, be given to us. And let them, the priests of Baal, choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. So they got wood set up here and they lay this slain sacrifice up there. And then he says, I'm going to prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood. So he's got a wood pile over on this side with the sacrifice. All right, so you guys will start. You'll call upon the name of your God and then I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he wins. He's got pretty simple. This is a pretty simple three-second match pinned. All right? Let's see who wins. So they enter the ring first. So he said in verse 25, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it. So they did. Verse 26, they took the bull, they prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon. And here's what it says. And it has an exclamation point. So I'm sure they said this. Oh, Baal! Answer us! So they're shouting. Shouting's impressive. You know, if you raise your voice, then God must be hearing you. Because if I just give my normal monotone voice, he must not hear me. So if I shout! So they shout like that, uh, but there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made it. So Elijah's waiting. I mean, this is a long time. So at noon, Elijah's checking his watch a little bit, and he's saying... You know what? You need, you need to cry louder, man, if he's God. Cry loud. Either he's musing, that means he's just joking around with you, or he's relieving himself. He's on the toilet, reading the paper. Now, he's probably on the toilet with his cell phone, surfing through ESPN scores. Your God is looking at ESPN scores. That's what's going on. So he's making fun of... It's just, here's a quick question. Let's just stop this for a second. Is he scared of the devil? No, 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 he's making fun of him. I, and I'm, I'm going to say we have to be careful how much we make fun of him. But I will say he's not scared of him. He's mocking people who are. Oh, he's on a toilet. That's why he's taking so long. And then it says, oh, he's maybe on a journey. Oh, he's probably sleeping. So they cried even louder, and they cut themselves, sliced themselves with blades, oozing, you know, their probably weird chants, whoa, and blood's dripping, and man, it's creepy. Isn't it creepy? Oh, see how creepy? If it's creepy, it's got to be demonic. Whoa, what power they're conjuring. So, so as midday passed, they raved on, they raved on, they kept doing it, they're having a rave party. They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Kind of feeble on that side. So Elijah, verse 31, he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes. Verse 32, he built an altar. He made a trench. Filled the trench full of water. Verse 33, they poured the water on the wood and the offering. He said, do it again. Drench it. Drench it. That's verse 35. 
Water ran around the altar, filled the trench. In 36, at the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet came out. And I tried to find an exclamation point in this. I'm not, there's no shouting. Doesn't seem like to be shouting. He just says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Not I'm your servant, that I've done all these things according to your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord, our God, and that you've turned their hearts back. Then 38. Whoosh! And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. I love this last phrase. And licked up the water. The fire just went. So Elijah's just like this. Probably went like that. Probably goes like that. It's over. And it says, all of the people fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. Who do they fear? They fear the Lord. They fall on their faces. Why do we fear so much? He who has no power. We should wake up in the morning when our fear overcomes us, fall on our faces and Lord, you got this. <laughs> you got it. The Lord, he is God. So we can finally live in joy. So we can finally let go. I was, I just have one more thing. I was doing some research for somebody this week and there's a question came up. Can you be cursed without you knowing it? Can you be under the spell of Satan without knowing it? Or maybe I pick up, maybe this pencil was a voodoo witch doctor's and it's in my house. Am I in trouble? Oh, is my life cursed? And I came across this verse. This is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5. It's an amazing verse. There was this guy named Balaam, and Balaam cursed Israel. He was cursing them. He was hired to curse them. And listen to what happened. It had no effect, and it gives the reason. Here's what it says. Verse 5, and you shall make response before the, oh, here it is, verse 5, 23, 5. The Lord will not listen to Balaam. He won't listen to the curse. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse. He, he did you, you didn't even have to pray about it or anything. He turned the curse into a blessing. It's as if he acted on his own. He turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why would he do that? Because the Lord your God loves you. He's got the advantage. He's got love. We are protected under that love. Satan can't go around that love. He can't dupe God with his little chicanery of lies because God loves us. We're his. It's reading in the Psalms. We are the apple of his eye. I was thinking about one more curse. Actually, after the second service, there is another curse. Do you know that everyone is cursed who hangs on a tree? And the curse is sin and hell. And he hung on the tree to reverse the curse. So that curse no longer affects those who love him. So if I love him, I don't have to worry about sin and hell. Because I'm protected by his love. That's his advantage.